the Norwich Sessions. And welcome to this podcast from RCVS Knowledge. My name is Lara Kareem, and today we're coming to you from the University of Oxford, where the esteemed Trish Greenhouse is Professor of Primary Care Health Sciences. We're delighted that Trish is hosting us today to lead a roundtable discussion on the subject implementation science. What can veterinary medicine learn from human medicine? Trish is an internationally recognised academic in primary health care, having previously held professorships at UCL and Queen Mary University of London. She also trained as a GP. Trish leads a programme of research at the interface between social sciences and medicine, with a strong emphasis on the organisation and delivery of health services. In addition, she is Joint Module Coordinator on the Knowledge Interaction Module of Oxford's MSc in Evidence-Based Healthcare. Trish, thank you very much for having us today. Uh, before we get into the discussion, could I invite our roundtable guests to introduce themselves briefly, um, touching on the nature of your interest in this area? So, my name is Zoe Belshaw. Um, I am an internal medicine specialist in dog and cats. Um, and for the last seven years, I've been working in the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine at the University of Nottingham, firstly doing a PhD, looking at how vets and owners make decisions about elderly pets, um, and then doing postdoctoral work, looking at attitudes of vets, owners and nurses around preventive health care. I'm currently combining that with working two days a week back in general clinical practice at the PDSA, which is a charity veterinary clinic based in Nottingham, um, and doing lots of other bits and bobs on the side. Hello, my name's Louise Buckley. Um, I'm a veterinary nurse who's been practicing for 20 years. Um, I work, um, I've lectured in, in veterinary nursing at a university for seven years, and I've been with the University of Edinburgh for the last two years, working in postgraduate education um, in the area of clinical animal behaviour. Um, I also work part-time in veterinary practice as a locum. Hi there, I'm Imogen Schofield. I graduated as a vet six years ago and worked in primary care practice for four years. I then made a move into more of the world of academia, firstly by doing a master's in veterinary epidemiology and I'm now currently a PhD student at the Royal Veterinary College. I'm using primary care um, electronic health records to try and um, increase the level of evidence from the primary care um, perspective. I think my interest in this was after coming out from university into the world of practice and finding it a little bit overwhelming as to how to summarise the evidences that, that's there and um, trying to get the approach from a primary care point of view. Hello, my name is Adewale Adekola. I am a veterinarian. I trained as a veterinarian in Nigeria uh, from the University of Ibadan. And after graduation, I worked briefly for two years as a veterinarian before I got interested in public health and decided to go into, uh, I did a master's in clinical pathology, after which I did a master's in public health as a means of trying to combine um, some of my expertise as a veterinarian into uh, practical application in human health angle as well, taking the one health approach. And that formed the basis of my present um, PhD at the Royal Veterinary College, where I'm working on the molecular, clinical, and immunological um, um, epidemiology of canine leptospirosis in Nigeria as a means of improving diagnosis and also the knowledge about it in Nigeria, both for human and animal health. Hi, I'm Laura Playforth. I am a veterinary surgeon. I qualified 20 years ago and I currently work for Vets Now as the Professional Standards Director. 
Um, my role involves uh, clinical and professional standards and the culture within Vets Now across all our clinics and hospitals, working with our team of clinical leaders. I've been interested in quality improvement for some time and it forms a very large part of my role. I've very recently completed my Masters in Advancing Healthcare Practice and I also um, am the current Vice Chair of RCVS Knowledge Quality Improvement Advisory Board. Thanks everyone. Shall we start then, uh, Trish, with a definition? Yes, I suppose there isn't one single definition of implementation science, and I think that's probably good. Different people uh, look on it in slightly different ways, but broadly speaking, it's the link between research evidence and the use of that evidence in practice and policy. So, for example, that includes things like, well, how can we best express evidence in a way that people will engage with it and understand it? How can we influence the behaviour of practitioners, lay people, uh, in order to use evidence uh, optimally and appropriately? How can we support the uh, work of groups and teams? How can team dynamics influence whether evidence is taken up appropriately and, and fully? How can we create the organisational environment in which new research evidence is taken up and discussed and, and rapidly implemented? And how can we support evidence-based policy making? So those are some of the areas in which implementation science is relevant. And depending on which of those and other ramifications of, of implementation you're looking at, you will have a slightly different definition of, of what that implementation would actually look like. Let's start with the problem. Here's the problem. Now, hang on, which bits of the theoretical insights are particularly salient and relevant to this case? And I think if we have the confidence to start with the stories, start with reflecting on the stories, then we'll end up um, drawing on the right bits of evidence. I don't think I have an particular story but I think pulling from it I used to well I still do find it very difficult um, looking at it from the veterinary primary health perspective that a lot of our evidence is gold standard so coming from a referral practice and um, saying that if you've got um, a dog with a broken leg that needs a fracture repair these are the kind of steps that you need to take and best practice for fixation and that sort of thing. But when it comes into a primary care situation, an evidence base is situation specific and you have issues with finances or limitations on insurance, it changes what is recommended um, and what you can implement in practice. And I think that's the the part that I've always found very difficult is actually taking what we know is best practice but actually um, kind of applying that to most cases that we see. I think a lot of what you should be doing isn't actually feasible for a lot of cases that we are seeing. Um, That's a really great example and if we now continue with that narrative the things that stop you being able to follow best practice recommendations are fundamentally resources and 
practicalities, logistics? What, what, what exactly would stop you? I think um, a lot of it is financial from the owner's point of view that mm -hmm. is a limiting factor. Um, I think um, sometimes resources, so if you've... Um, you can't send that animal away to a specialist centre and you're keeping that within practice. It might be um, a personal level, so if it's kind of an emergency situation then I've only been qualified for a couple of years, I think my level of expertise would not be the same as someone 30 years graduated or something like that. So I think sometimes it can be um, specific to what you've got available in practice. So I think it's always fluctuating depending on... Um, yeah, the specifics in that practice as well as a financial situation to the owner. Now, this is, this is a very interesting example because what we seem to be having here is the council of perfection from your gold standard trials, whatever it might be, and then the practical reality of, um, of veterinary practice as actually practised. Now... I would say that what we've got here is an evidence base that is not fit for purpose. So rather than say, well, of course, you've got to stand on your head and make this work, which, of course, you can't do, we need to push back and say we need an evidence base that is better suited to the reality that we're living in. Now, th this whole podcast is about how what can vet medicine learn from human medicine and one of the things that we might want to transfer over is something called the pragmatic randomized controlled trial so you all know what a randomized controlled trial is you randomly allocate the the participants to either the intervention or the control group and there is a school of thought that says you should do that in a very pure way to get you know the the maximum difference between the groups but there's also a school of thought that says no 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 bring the trial into the down and dirty of real world practice and you know when I say down and dirty you know what I mean it's it's all those things in our real lives and, and work that constrain the kind of interventions that we can actually deliver and so for example affordability would be a very big thing. There's a limited amount of money that someone's going to spend on their dog, for example. Um, and perhaps, you know, that should be taken into account and built into the trial. So what you would do in a pragmatic randomised controlled trial is, first of all, you'd co-design it with the practitioners and also the pet owners who might be affected by the evidence uh, when it was generated. So you co-design the study and you'd say, all right, this is going to be the intervention, this is going to be the control, but the intervention would take account of the fact that there is an affordability dimension. And so what you'd end up with at the end of that pragmatic trial is something that wasn't perfect in the sense if you spent an unlimited amount of money, you'd have a different intervention. But the intervention would be something that spoke to the realities of clinical practice. That's all very well, but what you've actually got is a different evidence base. So we're then talking about, hmm, what do we do when the evidence base doesn't apply to me here in my practice? And the answer is we have to use common sense. That There is no magic way of making that evidence base work. It's, you know, and, and, and tell me what you do actually do. 
Let's say I had a dog that had a broken leg and I was only prepared to spend 50 quid on it. What would you do? Yeah, I think it is doing what is um, going to relieve that suffering or um, what is possible in that situation. So I always provide the options that are there um, and give an idea of cost to that. So it might be that it's a salvage procedure, so you end up amputating the limb or something like that. Um, and again, it would depend on um, a sort of age and situation based of that pet. So it might be that we're dealing with like a 13-year-old working dog and it's no benefit to the farmer anymore. Um, so there's always a different situation, but it, it, like you say, it is using a bit of common sense and discussing it with the the owner um, and getting an idea of where they want to take it yeah. so um, I think other situations with a complex medical case or that sort of thing I think um, often it's it's kind of group discussions and getting multiple other vets input and kind of trying to use this collective experience rather than yeah. using it from that literature base but trying to um, use everyone's point of view of what they've done in a similar situation. Yes, and I think I would encourage you to have confidence in what you're doing professionally because the first thing you said when you were talking about that was it's all about relieving suffering or minimising suffering. In other words, you are driven, as professionals tend to be, by an ethical commitment to do the best for your patient. And, of course, you've got two patients in inverted commas as a vet, haven't you? You've got, you've got the animal and then you've got the owner. Uh, and the work I've done with vets makes me realise that there's, there's sometimes tensions there in the same way that we have, we have with you know, parents and children in medicine. Um, now, the decision-making that gets done by professionals tends to be driven by what we call case-based reasoning which is something that Aristotle introduced, goodness knows, 500 years BC. What is the best outcome I can achieve for this patient at this time, given these constraints? And the way you do that is you deliberate around the practicalities, around the priorities, around your very strong professional instincts. And one of the things that gets factored into that is the evidence from randomised controlled trials. But if that evidence is telling you to do something that is frankly not affordable or not, not possible, then you rightly reject that and you make a decision based on the wider aspects of the case. I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but wouldn't it be nice if you also had a pragmatic randomised controlled trial that was done under conditions of limited resource and then you could draw on that evidence? So I would say that you are practising implementation science or you're practising, you know, best evidence applied to your practice, uh, but it, it's a pragmatic approach and there's nothing wrong with that. I think one of the other challenges we also face, even in situations like that, can be that the outcomes that have been done, we've got a big problem with an absence of evidence in the first place where there just isn't any evidence at all on which to, to make a lot of our decisions but specifically, again, back to the ones that are done in the more referral setting, sometimes the outcomes that are measured just aren't ones that are necessarily particularly relevant to you as a vet in general private practice um, or necessarily particularly relevant to the, the owner or the dog. So it may be that 
after a lameness has been managed with a particular surgical procedure, for example, after a cruciate ligament has been repaired, the way that they'll determine success will be how much weight the dog places on its foot on a treadmill. Well, that's fine, and it is an objective way of potentially measuring that, but it's not necessarily something that the owner is going to find particularly useful as an outcome. And so sometimes, even if we do have good evidence, actually, because the outcomes in the trials that have been performed aren't clinically relevant, you still look at the evidence and say, well, actually, it doesn't necessarily take me that much further forward. And that's a, another challenge that we certainly face, I think, even when there is evidence there, which unfortunately is quite, can be rare. That's, that's very interesting. And it takes us into a, an interesting area of work in, in human medicine around patient-relevant outcome measures or patient-reported experience measures. So you have PROMs and PREMs. Uh, and it's worth looking some of those up. The way they are developed is through, first of all, qualitative research, talking and listening to people about their experiences in, with a particular illness or condition or, or disability and saying, well, what, what is relevant to you uh, and doing that across a big sample of people and then coming up with a, a, a prem and a prom uh, to measure an outcome. Having said that, you know, because most of you are practitioners working with individuals, that there may be one particular individual owner slash pet uh, where they're saying the outcome that matters to them is not the one that would matter to most people. And so you quite rightly say, all right, well, in that case, in your case, we'll do it differently. So you have an, uh, you know, you adapt. But the idea of um, patient-relevant outcome measures being developed in veterinary medicine, someone should put in a PhD application for that because it'd be great to have that happening. It started already. Oh, go on. As well, so the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine in Nottingham, um, Rachel Dean, who was the director of the centre, used the James, James Lind Alliance to look at um, a mixture of clinicians and vets putting together a, um, a group of core outcomes. And a PhD student, Hannah, who's doing a bigger piece of work on that, looking at chronic kidney disease in cats, getting together owners and vets, having done a big online qualitative survey almost to get people to say what questions would you be interested in. They've then used a ranking system to come up with a list of priorities that they're going to take forward as part of her PhD. So starting... Fantastic. And, and just for people who are not familiar with the James Lind Alliance, this was set up about 20 years ago by Professor Ian Chalmers. It was the idea in human medicine to get patients to have an input into what research money should be spent on. What are your priorities as a patient with condition X? Um, and in discussion between patients and clinicians, there would then be a priority setting process to uh, rank for things that got researched. The James Lind Alliance does fantastic work and has led to some more patient-focused research in medicine. So I'm absolutely delighted to hear that this is going on with veterinary medicine as well. I think another area I'd like to talk about is um, where you talk about um, resource-limited areas and the tension between clients and um, the veterinarian as well. I think from my own um, environment, I think I've actually noticed that happened a lot in places where interventions are actually sort of imported from other places because you don't have enough research in your own local context to actually look at the situation there. 
so you adopt methods from probably Europe or from America and all that and bring it down to a place like Nigeria and you realize at that point most times um, the clients actually tend to actually question some of those the, the veracity of some of those evidence because they were like is the situation in those areas the same as what we have in this place with the outcome at the end of the day also becoming certain what we get at the end of the day if you're trying to bring in like probably a treatment method or a vaccine that has been tested in in the uk down to nigeria how are you so sure that the server or the strains we have in nigeria is the same as those they have there in the uk so most of the time those tension also affects how some of the clinicians i mean clients are actually receptive to some of the um treatment options uh, veterinarians offer to them so in, from your own angle how do you think that can actually be worked on that's a, a very interesting question and i would strongly agree with you that the claim of the randomized controlled trial for example to be universally applicable uh, is questionable we do randomized controlled trials and the idea is because you've randomized then you, you've kind of controlled for the effect of context. And philosophically, that actually doesn't hold true. It doesn't hold true when you, when, when you do trials in secondary care and try to apply them to primary care. And it doesn't hold true even more when you take um, high-income country trials and apply them to low-income countries for all sorts of reasons. The, you can't control for or cancel out the effect of context. So we then have to say, well, what do we do with low-income settings where there isn't the funding to, to do the, the trials? Uh, and in the end, often we do have to compromise, but perhaps we should be compromising by, by saying, well, well, is there any other low-income setting or any other tropical setting or whatever that we can uh, draw insights from uh, rather than you know, there, there's a colonialist element here, isn't there? They say, well, hang on a minute, can you take evidence that was produced in America and the UK uh, and simply graft it onto sub-Saharan Africa? And of course, you know, there are really big questions there, questions uh, around, you know, the whole global health agenda. Um, not easily answered and probably not directly relevant to what we're talking about today, but yeah, I agree with you. I think for me, one of the, the problems that I have in my head um, when it comes to thinking about evidence-based practice and best practice is that it seems to be a progressive move towards more and more expensive veterinary medicine um, where decisions are being based, based on um, one disease process and one treatment versus another treatment, etc. Um, and life's not like that. And I kind of think it would probably need to get away from best practice to sort of optimising our decision making across loads of different different measures um, and those include things like finance, they include the time that it takes to look after the patient, they include other factors for the client and I think the research needs to reflect that in terms of the outcome measures but in my mind I almost have a, a situation that we need to go to where we have a, almost like when you're taking a bank loan and you have a series of slideys um, for how long you're going to take the loan over, how much you're going to take it for etc and I'm if you could do, yeah, and if you could do that for time improvement in health etc you could actually find the the optimal point potentially for that individual or, or that subsection of, of the community i'm fascinated by this you've now got us to imagine looking at a computer 
with a set of sliders and some particular things that you're you you want everybody to to say well look this is where i am on this continuum between x and y for, for for various categories and then that's going to give you okay this is what you should do in that situation and i think that's a wonderful fantasy idea that you know, it would be great and get this messy real world problem i could go onto my computer and i go click 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 and that it would tell me this is the best approach and i would suggest to you that that's never going to happen because what does happen is your brain is better than any piece of technology in pulling together the effects of context and working out what is the best approach for this particular client animal in these circumstances that's what we call case-based reasoning and the research into case-based reasoning suggests that the way we get better at it is not by making it more technocratic or by imposing technologies but by reflection and deliberation and discussion so i don't know what it's like with vets but if you get a load of doctors together within five minutes we're talking about oh, we saw a really interesting case the other day oh, i saw this lady you know blah 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 and what you do then is you tell the story of what happened and often it's the struggles that you were having as a professional trying to make the best decision for that patient and all the things that were interfering with the patient getting the right treatment and then the person who's listening to that story says oh did you try this or have you thought of that and actually that deliberation slash discussion reflection process is what makes you better at decision making and we should all be valuing that more it's not a poor substitute for the technical stuff it's actually the way it should be done the technology is the poor substitute there discuss when, but where that becomes quite interesting, for my, my brain thinks a lot in pictures. So when you're, when, while you were talking, I started to visualise the evidence pyramid and I started thinking about the different things that you're assimilating when making that decision-making. And the bit that's for healthcare is probably going to come from the randomised controlled trials, so our outcome measures that we're going to factor in in that aspect. But then everything else sits at the bottom of the evidence pyramid in terms of our, our life experiences of what it li is like to live in a busy household with children that might get in the way of you dieting your pet, for example. So all of those factors are all sitting there at the bottom of the evidence pyramid where we're, we're teaching everyone to try and predominantly use evidence from the top, which is in relation to the healthcare outcomes. But then everything else is sitting there. It's our experiential experiences. Um, and it's pulling all of those together to make a, a decision that's yes. right for that patient when the research is focusing firmly on the healthcare outcome measures and not enough on other outcome measures. And I quite often look at this, these, this drive, relentless drive towards best practice and potentially diminishing returns to the patient's welfare um, yes, that make exactly. vet care more and more expensive to the point that people don't want to own pets anymore. And that's something that, that, that scares yes, that's, me. That's really... If that's the ultimate end of evidence-based vet medicine, that that evidence pyramid with its systematic reviews and meta-analyses at the top and its randomised trials and then right down the bottom is what we call anecdote, 
And somehow the end result of that is that people don't want to own pets anymore. That's really quite counterproductive, isn't it? Now, I am to some extent a supporter of the evidence pyramid in the sense that if I was going to make a decision on, let's call it the dog with the broken leg, I would want to have a look at what the randomised trials showed. And I would value those randomised controlled trials over and above some vet walking in and saying, you never guess what happened the other day, dog came in with a broken leg and, you know, this is what I did, strapped a pencil to it, seemed to do all right, that kind of thing. Um, of course, the randomised controlled trial should be above that story because it's a better form of research evidence for, for reasons that, that you all understand. However, that's the pyramid of research evidence, and it's not just research evidence that you take into account when you make the decision. So it is also, I mean, the example of putting a pet on a diet uh, in a house where there's a lot of kids around and it's going to be very difficult to implement that diet is a very good example of saying, well, it's, you've got to take into account the reality of that animal in the context and you've got to um, bring in the research evidence that is relevant to that decision, uh, which isn't just a randomised controlled trial of dogs on diets without kids in the house because that's actually less relevant. So I would say the evidence pyramid is fine and important in terms of assessing the value of research evidence, but there's also contextual evidence. And the way you pull it together is you tell the story, you bring the narrative, you give the account of the, the client or the animal in context, and that's not just about the research evidence very, very important. It suddenly struck me that round this table, we've got a skewed sample of vets. We've got vets who've got master's degrees and PhDs and who work as university lecturers in evidence-based practice. That's not reflective of everybody out there. Uh, and I know from my work with health professionals, with doctors and nurses and physios and things like that, the people who come on the courses are the ones who are already kind of turned on to the whole notion of using evidence. And I think it might be worth discussing, hang on a minute, there's vets out there who don't even read the evidence, who have no idea about the evidence and who don't respect the evidence, have never heard of the pyramid, all that kind of thing. And perhaps we should discuss a little bit Hang on a minute, how are you going to influence those people? I was just going to say something slightly different before we move on to that about um, one of the things that we've tried to do in Vets Now, um, which runs along a, a similar sort of lines of how to use the evidence. And we've, um, instead of having clinical guidelines, what we've developed is more clinical checklists. So it acts as a bit of a structure or a framework for the thought process um, on that individual case. So it's a bit of a prompt in terms of um, not to forget to consider something, but also its structure, it can be used to structure that discussion with the pet owner. So we've got a few in place at the moment, which are divided up by different presentations in the out of hours scenario. Um, so, for example, we have one for dystopia for whelping bitches, um, and it is structured a little bit like the surgical safety checklist in time periods of taking the history and when you're in the consultation, the physical exam, diagnostics, etc. Um, and it acts as a bit of a prompt for 
for example, the diagnostics, have you considered ultrasound, have you considered x-ray? And there's a little bit of information, um, very high level, about what the evidence is um, for considering these things. Um, but then that can prompt you to have the discussion with the client, this is why I want to do this, this is how much it's going to cost, um, and the risks of not doing this are X, Y, and Z. That sounds fantastic. And I think one of the things that is happening in evidence-based medicine is a realisation that although clinical practice guidelines are often you know, very robust and rigorous and all those kind of adjectives, actually they're completely unworkable because they're 150 pages long and they don't actually take you through the care pathway, if you like. And uh, we are developing shorter, more pragmatic, more visually appealing uh, summaries of evidence. Uh, and one of the areas that, that we're doing that is in evidence-based care pathways, bundles is another thing where you have a patient who's about to be discharged from hospital and guess what the junior doctor is uh, about to write the discharge letter and there's 10 things or five things that that junior doctor needs to do and it's all the evidence-based things that should happen at discharge but they're all kind of pulled together in one place and again it's done as a checklist and of course junior doctors love it because they can go tick 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 and and, and actually that that's a very good and concentrated way of supporting evidence getting into practice. As you and I know, it doesn't guarantee that the evidence is going to get put into practice because in the end, that practitioner, you know, you and I are not there when they're doing it. And so it's a question of have you considered dot, 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 rather than you must do dot, dot, dot. But yes, I, I, this sounds really positive and a really great idea. And I think moving on to um, your next point about how we engage people who are not already engaged in implemented evidence-based medicine. Um, one of the tensions we've found as a, a larger group, although we're not one of the largest in the profession, we are a large group with a lot of different sites, um, is that tension between trying to get everybody engaged in developing something and having five or 600 clinicians who can't all be involved in creating something. Um, and I was interested reading through um, one of your papers that you sent out to us before this discussion uh, around letting people in practice adapt to their own context and their own practice situation, which I think is a fantastic idea. Um, although there is a tension again with that and people um, working across our different sites and the fact that if they're going to practice X and the checklist is one way and they're going to practice Y and the checklist is a whole other way, then that can cause um, a risk for mistakes as well, I think. Yes, I think that's right. That the, the, the meshing of the recommendation with the context in which it's going to be implemented is, is never perfect. It's There's always going to be now we have words for this articulations is one of them workarounds compromises um Anne marie mole calls it tinkering so those little fiddles that people put into place in order to try and make you know this council of perfection actually applicable at the front line now sometimes that's a good thing because it makes makes it more likely to happen other times it's quite awkward and as you say can lead to errors have you got an actual example of that well i suppose um most things that we have tried to implement across 
the business we get tend to get a very variable uptake and obviously those who've been involved in developing it are tend to be much more engaged because they've been a part of putting it in place and people who've got an interest in that specific area or that thing that we're trying to improve tend to be very engaged with it other people um would perceive it as more of a top-down um, implementation because they've not been involved with it and yes. haven't been part of it so the uptake tends to be very variable um but also then people will go away and adapt and adjust and knock this box off because they don't like that one and put something else on um and some of them are definitely improvements and make it better um but then somebody else has a different idea and improves it in a different way and then you end up with two different versions um so thinking back historically i think probably our best example of that would be our old hospitalization sheets and people would download them from our intranet and adapt them to their own setting and then you'd go out across you know 50 or however many clinics we had in those days and you'd probably see 50 different versions interesting and what kind of ad adaptations would they so they change the time periods they'd add on different things that they wanted to record and they would really end up very divergent um, and i think when you've got staff working across different sites and locums who ex you know they walk into a vets now clinic and they kind of expect that they're all going to be the same that can be very confusing when they've got very different methods of recording clinical information this is this is very very interesting so i would say that your hospitalization sheet is an example of what we call a complex intervention in other words it's an intervention that uh, needs to involve human behaviour, it needs to involve changes in, in how the organisational routines happen, all that kind of thing. And it, it can be implemented more or less faithfully. You call it the fidelity of the intervention. Now, the question is, how much change might happen to that intervention before it is no longer the intervention that you started with? And there's some interesting work by a woman called Penny Hoare, H-A-W-E. And she wrote a paper quite some years ago now. It's published in the British Medical Journal called How Out of Control Can a Randomised Controlled Trial Be? <laughs> and it, with her co-authors, she made a theoretical argument that there are certain things in a complex intervention that make it the intervention that it is and there are certain other things that really could be changed or dropped um, or improved on. And, and yet you still got the basic intervention. So, for example, we did some work around um, storytelling and we found that people with diabetes like to tell stories about what it's like coping with their diabetes. And so we developed an intervention called the story sharing intervention. And we did a randomized controlled trial of it. And guess what? Every um, site implemented that intervention very differently. So some of them, for example, provided refreshments for the patients halfway through the session. And some of them had um, greater or lesser level of instruction as to what kind of stories were allowed. Uh, and we said, that's fine. But the core intervention is that there should be spontaneous sharing of stories and people should be allowed to tell whatever stories they want in the way that they want. So if someone came in and said to people, you've got to tell your story according to this template, that then stopped being a story sharing intervention. But in terms of how long the sessions were, whether there were refreshments, um, whether there was a facilitator or not, that we said, no, that's all right. 
Um, and so we, we characterised what it was that made it not the intervention. Now, we were doing that because we were running a randomised controlled trial, which is not something I do very often, I have to say, because I, I, you know, it's, it's not the main thing I do in my research. But I think the idea that it's okay to adapt an intervention provided that the theoretical core of that intervention is retained um, and perhaps even enhanced. And so, I mean, Jean-Louis Denis talks about the hard core and the soft periphery. Every complex intervention has a hard core, which you can't change, and a soft periphery, which you must change in order to embed it. So I think those are quite useful concepts uh, when, when you're trying to implement uh, an intervention. But in general, I like to be fairly permissive. I like to encourage people to adapt things because I think they, they, they work better when someone's adapted them to, to context. I was just going to go back to your point about the, um, the challenges of getting people interested in evidence-based veterinary medicine and the fact that there are people who really think that it is a very top-down prescriptive thing, that it eradicates their experience, that it's saying that actually experience is totally invalid, you have to use these randomised controlled trials. And these are things that you see vets saying on social media, that you see in discussions. And I think we have to acknowledge that there are lots of barriers to people being able to access the evidence and being able to implement it. Um, you know, time pressures are huge in veterinary practice. If you're consulting all day, as I do on a Monday and Tuesday, I'll start consulting at nine, I'll do 10 minute consultations um, with a half hour break, if I'm lucky, until half past 12. Then I get a lunch break and then I'll start that again for another three hours in the afternoon. And I would love to be able to look up the evidence while I'm working, but I have 10 minute consultations, multi-morbid animals with multiple presenting and non-presenting problems with often quite a challenging client base. And you just can't, A, have the time to do it, and B, also in a clinic setting, it's very difficult to access the evidence because we haven't got amazing resources like NICE to be able to look up evidence summaries. RCVS Knowledge provides some. There are some cats, so critically appraised topics. Um, we at the Centre for Evidence-Based Veterinary Medicine have made best bets, which are, again, these little snappy evidence summaries of clinically relevant questions. And we've tried to disseminate those via social media by creating things like blog shots, so a single PowerPoint slide that summarises the question and the evidence, which then um, links back to the, the original bet. But it is tremendously difficult to get sceptics to engage. And I think one of the, the, the big barriers for me are time actually being able to access the evidence and having the confidence to be able to look at and appraise that evidence or having the skills really um, and also this this fear I think amongst some people that actually it is taking away from them their sense of what it is to be a vet which is the art more than the science I don't know what you think yes, about that. Yes and I think that what you're saying Zoe that, that was a, a great summary of, of some of the challenges with evidence-based practice and certainly medicine and nursing and the allied health professionals like physiotherapy have all been through exactly this um, experience. I would say that evidence-based medicine does have some, um, does need to take some responsibility for threatening the sense of professional autonomy this idea that someone who's been doing it for 20 years really knows nothing until they've looked at the latest randomised controlled trials 
is quite insulting because accumulated professional experience is a kind of knowledge that should not be dismissed out of hand. It's, it's very important. You know, if I was sick, I would want to go to a doctor that's been around for 20 years rather than one that just qualified yesterday, whether or not they just come top in the exams. And we all know why that is. Um, I wonder if it's useful to bring in here the concept of mind lines. Now, John Gabay, who's a doctor, and Andre LeMay, uh, who's professor of nursing, uh, did some work about 15 years ago where they watched general practitioners uh, in their clinical practice, and they sat in the GP surgeries and watched as the patients came and went. And after several months of, of observing, they came to the conclusion that never once did the GP pull out a guideline in the middle of a consultation. They simply don't do it. They didn't look at it on the wall. They didn't look at it on the computer. They didn't have the guideline in a drawer. Uh, what they did was they talked about cases with each other over coffee, over lunch, all that kind of thing. And also, increasingly these days, on social media. So there's a, there's a doctor's Facebook group, which you've got to prove you're a doctor to be a, a member of, and anonymised versions of patient problems get posted on there, saying, I've got a lady with a cholesterol level of this, everything else is fine, do you think I should refer her to a specialist, that kind of thing. And then the other doctors will come back saying, well, the guideline says you should, but I wouldn't. And so what you get there is a, a kind of collective understanding, a collective wisdom based both on experience and on some people's reading of the guidelines. And that's what John Gabay and Andre LeMay called the mind line, the collective understanding of what to do in practice. Now, that is actually tapping into a much broader definition of knowledge than simply the research evidence. And I would suggest that experienced vets and, and, and perhaps even more so newly qualified vets are uh, part of that mind line and they have to be part of the community of practice. They, they have to engage with their wiser and older vets, help me with this problem. That's not something that evidence-based uh, practice should be dismissing. That's something that evidence-based practice should be supporting and engaging in. I've, I've actually got two PhD students who are looking at the philosophy of knowledge in evidence-based practice and saying that we've got to move beyond the RCT evidence. I think what, what you just said now just goes back to the whole idea of um, peripheral learning where you're bringing in the new vets into the community of learning of people that with broad experience and trying to learn from their own experience over time, even though they're not bringing out the guidelines and everything, but at least they're using the accumulated experience and all the anecdotal uh, contextual uh, experiences also they've had over time to also teach the younger ones how to actually do some of the things better. Yes, and of course, you know, veterinary medicine, just like medicine, just like nursing, we learn a lot through apprenticeship. We learn a lot through following the expert around and, and if you like, imbibing and embodying an, a, a complex approach to clinical practice. Now, one of the things I wanted to talk about in this podcast was uh, something called social cognitive theory, which was developed by a psychologist called Albert Bandura. And what he said in social cognitive theory is that if you've got someone who's a novice at a particular um, topic, if they see people that they respect doing something 
and if they gain practice in doing it, and if they get support to do it better, and as they gain confidence in doing it, then they're much more likely to change their practice. So it's observing people that you respect, it's practicing it on the job, it's getting help to improve how well you're doing it, and it's also boosting confidence, what people call self-efficacy, then you're much more likely to do it. And, and, and what that means in practice is that don't spend too long sitting your students in a classroom with, with you know, the whiteboard and talking about the theory. Get them in practice, apprenticing to experienced practitioners, get them doing it and giving them feedback on, on how well they're doing it they're much more likely to um, undergo a sustained change in what they do. I think that's interesting. I think drawing in from that slightly from um, bringing in my own experience or talking to colleagues of mine that um, from the angle of a more recent graduate, and I think being the um, apprentice in a sense, um, I think there seems such a huge variety in um, what practice you start out at and I think I've been very fortunate at working in a, a big practice with a kind of 10-11 vets and some really experienced vets and I've found that invaluable but talking to colleagues who might be a vet at a branch practice or kind of they're there um, because they need a vet and um, a recent graduate's kind of um, often all that's available or something like that. I find that's been the challenge with talking to a lot of my colleagues that almost having the experienced vets around them is not there. Um, so I, I found it invaluable and I think it is a, um, a very powerful uh, way of bringing in evidence base. Um, but I think some practices that might be small or don't have the power of a big practice group behind them I think those might be the ones that struggle to take that approach with them and I don't know if that comes in with anything in medicine most certainly and um, right at the beginning when I was asked for a definition of implementation science one of the things I mentioned very briefly was the question of what kind of organization helps people put evidence into practice and you've just articulated a number of different features of organizations that make it more likely that people will be able to if you like be evidence-based while working there and one of them is size not because big is necessarily better but because very often if you've got a larger organization it's better resourced and it's more likely to be a learning organization, meaning it's got the systems to, for example, horizon scan. It may, for example, have a budget to have a library. It may have better IT facilities so that you can get onto the internet and look stuff up. Um, there might be someone whose role it is to uh, horizon scan and look beyond the organization to say, well, what's coming up? And, and someone would be that knowledge person in that organisation. And then there might be, for example, a weekly or monthly meeting where people would all get together and discuss the evidence that's, that's been published since the last meeting. There might be a journal club. Those are the kind of things that are more likely to happen in a large organisation. But in addition to that, 
there are things like um, the leadership of the organization. So, for example, the larger practices might be a training practice. They might have an explicit strategic goal to be evidence based rather than just kind of make a living, for example. Um, they may have systems in place to measure and monitor the extent to which practice is evidence based. And all those things are more likely in, you know, the larger practices, you know, it's, it's, it's harder, if you like, to have the organisational preconditions for innovation uh, if you are smaller and more isolated. I think as a profession, we're still struggling with justifying finding the time to do things like journal clubs, to do things like practice meetings, to do things like audit to determine whether or not actually what we're doing is any good. We're almost just on this hamster treadmill all the time of we need to keep seeing cases. We can't stop. We need to keep seeing cases. We need to keep making money. There's a queue of people that want to come in. It's not worth stopping and justifying even within the big organisations. I think unfortunately that it is beneficial for vets to sit down outside just regular tea and coffee breaks to discuss clinical cases to discuss the latest evidence is tremendously challenging and I think it's I don't know how many practices are now doing that certainly it's more common in the tertiary referral centers but in general practice I think those are things that would be really really useful but unfortunately aren't being prioritized because it can be difficult to justify financially when you've got people that are managing you who aren't necessarily vets why it is worth doing that and equally I think that's one of the barriers to people attending workshops and conferences related to evidence-based medicine and evidence-based veterinary medicine because again you've got a financial budget for CPD and when you're trying to justify what you go on either you could go on a fantastic two days at Evidence Live in Oxford and learn loads about how to how to learn how to think and what the evidence situation is or you could spend that money learning how to go and do a new cruciate procedure that would immediately be transferable back to your practice and, and make you more money. We're just at the beginning of that journey, and I hope that's not being too pejorative to us as a profession, but I think realistically that is still where we are. I think that you really articulated that well, that, that of course, you know, learning how to do a new cruciate procedure is also important, particularly in the short term. On the other hand, learning about the nature of evidence and how to implement it could strategically speaking be more important for the organization but i do remember a few years ago i was organizing some one day workshops for practice nurses on evidence based medicine or evidence based healthcare we we put together a program with the nurses, we co-designed it, and then we wrote to all the GPs who controlled the training budgets and saying, please, can you send your nurses on this? We've tried to make it affordable. It wasn't really wasn't very expensive. And the GPs said, well, no, because my budget is going to send this nurse on an asthma course and this nurse on a diabetes course, uh, because I've then I can then uh, put that nurse in charge of running the asthma clinic or the diabetic clinic. Uh, so it's a question of short term versus long term. And I absolutely understand the pressures of of um, the single handed practitioner or the, the you know, the small business uh, thinking that the short term benefits are, are, you know, more of a priority. I can't I can't solve that. But I think we all realize that it would be really nice if people took a, a longer view as well. I think even working in a larger group as we are absolutely fundamentally committed um, to doing as much as we can that is evidence-based and our clinical and professional standards are the absolute driving force of what we try to do but the cost of being able to do them is 
so high that ultimately either you have to stop doing something else, which you get to a point below which you can't stop doing other things because you need to do them to keep the business running, um, or um, ultimately you have to put up the cost to the pet owners. And as we've discussed earlier, you know there is a, a real concern about costs going up and up and up and that is a difficult tension for large companies as well as small practices i'll tell you one other thing that is has really come in big time in evidence-based medicine is disinvestment so i've been abroad three times in the last 12 months to uh, go to conferences around disinvestment in other words uh, stopping doing things that have a weak evidence base or where the evidence base says there's no point in doing these things what we call low value interventions low value treatments low value tests and the argument is that if we stopped doing the things that aren't worth doing we would then have time to do the things that are worth doing better and i just wonder whether there are any either tests or procedures that take a lot of your time that cost money but really you don't get very much benefit from those because wouldn't it be brilliant if we could stop doing those things? I think it'd be great if we had more evidence of what was <laughs> worth doing and what wasn't worth doing. So it's a bit of a... Um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you one example. I don't know anything about veterinary medicine, but certainly in, um, in medicine, human medicine, arthroscopies are coming in for a lot of stick that um, diagnostic looking into joints is uh, quite fashionable, particularly in the private sector, because guess what? The orthopaedic surgeons you know, make quite a lot of money out of it, but there's not a lot of evidence that, that it benefits. And actually, there's some evidence that it, it doesn't benefit, if you see what I mean. I, I mean, do you do arthroscopies and could you stop doing them? And they are done, definitely, and I don't know if we have the evidence yet as to whether or not we could stop doing them. Certainly people will do them still prior to doing cruciate ligament repairs in some centres, but now they're potentially being replaced or certainly supplemented with increased diagnostic imaging of MRI scans, CT scans of the knee joints. Yes, I'm, I'm just looking because somebody tweeted something yesterday and the acronym was BRAIN. Um, so the idea in... in you know, with, with uh, what they're trying to do with disinvestment is get the patients on board so that actually it's the patient who says to the doctor, do I really need this? Rather than having those awkward conversations where the patient assumes that they need the tests and the treatments and then you're trying to talk them out of it. So the idea is it's going to come from the patients. Now, let me see if I can remember what the BRAIN acronym is. Risks, alternatives and do nothing is the brand. Uh, okay, so the I is instinct. So what are the benefits of this test or this treatment? What are the risks? What's the downside? Um, what are the alternatives? What is your instinct? Which I think is a wonderful question. What would, what would, it, what would you have if you were in my position? And then what would happen if we did nothing? I think the idea that someone bringing their pet to the vet, for example, would have that brain acronym rather than say, you know, please, can you do everything, all the tests, you know, and I want all the injections and everything, all the operations. Actually, owners don't want that. Um, I mean, never mind about the cost. They actually don't want to put their pet through it. Uh, so, and, and we, it's equivalent, again, 
to the parent bringing the child to the GP with the cough, the stereotype is that the parent is demanding an antibiotic. But I've been a parent. I don't want my child on antibiotics if they don't need it. And, and you know, the idea that patients, clients are our allies often in disinvesting provided we have a, a you know a proper conversation and, and a democratic conversation so so i think there's there's quite a lot of interesting work around disinvestment in in vet medicine that we could yeah draw insights from the human i agree and it leads to an interesting conversation i think that we're having in veterinary medicine again at the moment around almost the role of the educated client I'm sure you in human healthcare have the same sort of memes of don't confuse your Google search with my medical degree. We absolutely are having that conversation about don't confuse your Google search with my veterinary degree. And there's a quite a degree of um, worry, I would say, amongst quite a lot of vets about owners having knowledge. There's almost a move to limit the resources that are available for clients to actually learn for themselves, which I'm passionately against us doing, to almost say, well, we only the only resources they should be reading are things that we've given them. And you've got fantastic websites like NHS Choices in human healthcare, and yet we really don't have a universal version of that. The PDSA are working on making one called the Pet Health Hub, which they're trying to Google optimise, which has got you know downloadable information sheets. But I think... Mm moving towards recognising the value of the client as our partner and wanting to have an educated client is something that we're quite a long way from. And I think there are lots of barriers to clients getting that information. And I think for me, an interesting one I'm just starting to realise is around actually the role of the, the media and how pets are reported. So for example, on Radio 4, you'll have Inside Health, you have All in the Mind, which are two fantastic programmes that talk about the evidence base, interview experts, if you look at where the media, for me, reflect pets, it's, oh, there's a cute duck that's stuck on a pond, or there's a cat stuck up in a tree, or let's laugh about this fat dog that's rolling around. And actually, it's really difficult for owners to access anything that is actually good quality evidence. I Yeah, wouldn't it be great to have something equivalent to, yeah, or in touch, or any of those programmes? Yeah. So, yes, yeah, so you're talking about the uh, empowered client coming in with the wadge of information downloaded from the internet or whatever. Um, one of the things that I've been arguing in human medicine is that the empowerment of the patient doesn't imply the disempowerment of the doctor. And I think if we can get across the message that just because your client is very knowledgeable, that doesn't take away your knowledge and it doesn't or shouldn't threaten you as the practitioner who is still the professional, but that you need to have a different kind of dialogue with the, the client who's coming along with that information. What is your understanding of it? Um, you know, how do you want me to respond? All that kind of thing. But certainly I would emphasize that the empowerment of the patient does not imply the disempowerment of the doctor. We have to rise above that zero-sum approach to patient knowledge. Um, I think we've covered an awful lot of ground, so I was going to pitch it back to the others around the table and ask them if there was anything that they wanted to raise. It's really just a practical issue. I mean, we've talked quite a bit about um, large organisations finding it easier to implement EBVM, but we are in a culture where we have a shortage of veterinary professionals. 
where there's uh, lots of practices that at various points in time are operating largely on, on locum vets and locum veterinary nurses. And I wondered what people's thoughts were in relation to how we implement EBVM in a veterinary practice where the, the umbrella company culture is EBVM. But on the local level, people won't know necessarily about the policies. There isn't time to, to learn about the, the policies in place of that veterinary practice, the, the checklists that are, that are in situ, etc. How we, we, we marry those two situations in order to, to allow EBVM to be practised. I think one of the things we've found, it depends if you are running entirely on locums or whether you've got a team of, for example, permanent nurses and veterinary locums or vice versa. And then one team can lead and influence the other. Um, and nurses are particularly adept at doing that. Um, if you've got all locums, then that is very difficult and very different. Um, and sometimes you try to, you need to have somebody else to lead that whether it's somebody else from a different clinic coming in or whether it is some of your non-clinical staff helping to make suggestions and help facilitate some of those processes. I think I, this really illustrates the issue around having a quality culture and I, I totally agree with you that if you've got a kind of critical mass of people who are reflexive, who are committed to excellence and who know, broadly speaking, what the evidence base is and, of course, who can access the relevant support artefacts like the checklists and things like that, uh, then when someone comes in doing a locum, then they fall in with that culture. Can I ask um, if you have in medicine successful examples of practice management systems being used to facilitate some of the processes? Interesting question. There has been a big debate around evidence-based medicine as to the extent to which it has been managerialized. Now, I'm old enough to remember right at the beginning, there were a few of us saying, let's write some guidelines and then let's make everybody follow them. And the way we're going to do that is we're going to punish them if they don't follow them or we're going to build it into their pay packets. And of course, that felt very good because we were in some kind of evangelistic movement that we were pretty sure we, we'd got you know, evidence-based practice and, and, and everybody needed to follow it. Now, it doesn't feel so good when you are the practitioner in in the local surgery and this directive comes and says you must implement this uh, and then you get the pushback having said that i think that one of the things that has worked really well is the managerialization of certain aspects of evidence-based practice and let me give you just one example um, when I first went into general practice, which was about 30-something years ago, hardly anyone had an up-to-date blood pressure recorded in their notes. Now, the best way you can prevent strokes is by controlling people's blood pressure, and you can't control someone's blood pressure if you don't know what it is. So the quality and outcomes framework was introduced probably 20 years ago, and the first thing they did was they paid GPs to record the blood pressure of every adult. And then, after a few years, they changed the, um, the payment system to say, well, you can only get paid if that blood pressure 
is within the range that we want it to be. You know, it's no good re recording a blood pressure is 200 over 100 if you haven't done anything about it. So the first thing they did was they paid the GPs to record the blood pressure and then they changed it. Right, we'll pay you if 80% of your patients have got the blood pressure in the level we want. Guess what? Fewer people have strokes these days. So that's not a bad thing. And sure, there are still GPs that moan that they're being made to do this or they're, they're losing money if they don't do it. But hey, it's quite a good thing to do. However, if you look at the arguments around the quality and outcomes framework more broadly, uh, GPs will say things like, well, we're spending so much of our time chasing our tails and doing the things you put in the quaff, as it's called. If something's not in the quaff, then we don't have time to do it. And so we're then detracting from all the things that we should be doing, like, you know, listening to old ladies who are lonely or whatever it might be. Um, so there's, of course, there has to be dialogue and debate around that. But I think a little bit of managerialization of, of something that is robustly evidence-based is not a bad idea. Can I potentially um, open a can of worms with this one? Um, in that we're very much talking about it being based around a practice and it's dependent on that practice management of implementing something for that group or practice. Whereas, do you think it should be um, more broad across the profession? So I know that RCVS do kind of their knowledge summaries and, and very much advocate this um, kind of use within practices. But on the human side of things within the NHS and there are kind of more broad guidelines or um, kind of the recommendations across the UK. Do you think we should be looking at this not from putting um, a lot of emphasis on the practice or should we be looking at this more from um, a higher body? <laughs> that, that's an interesting thing. So what you've got in human medicine or human healthcare You've got NICE, obviously, government body or government-funded body to put the evidence out there. And also, if a drug becomes NICE approved for uh, certain conditions, it's quite difficult for clinical commissioning groups to say we're not going to fund it. It does happen sometimes if we haven't got the money, but usually, that you know, NICE approving something makes it much more likely that you'll be able to get it on the NHS. So that's, that's one area. Um, you've then got um, the professions, the professional bodies. You've got the Royal College of GPs, the Royal College of Obstetricians, etc., etc. Uh, so those are the professional bodies. Um, you've then got local CCGs, but also the local medical committees of the, you know, the GPs uh, organising themselves locally. Um, you've got the universities and the postgraduate education programmes, so what we used to call the deaneries. Um, if I'm overseeing the professional development of a GP or a public health doctor, I have to sign them off to say, yes, they've achieved a certain competence in evidence-based practice. And then, as you say, you've got the individual healthcare organisations, either the GP practices or the hospitals or the departments. So all these things are happening in parallel. And it's not that one is driving the others, it's that we have a complex system. What you need is work at the professional level, work in undergraduate and postgraduate education, 
work with um, patients and the public, uh, all the things we've been talking about, then they're not mutually exclusive. They all have to happen in parallel. On that note, I'd like to thank all our participants today, particularly Trish Greenhalgh for hosting us, and to our guests Zoe Belshaw, Louise Buckley, Laura Playforth, Imogen Schofield, and Adewole Adekola for their thought-provoking insights and giving up their time. For more podcasts from RCVS Knowledge, find us on iTunes, Podbean, or go to our website at rcvsknowledge.org.